I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Knowledge is not for keeping. It should be treated like hot chestnuts. You have it in your hands and you, you gain as much pleasure and knowledge as you can from it. And then you throw it to somebody else. Keep passing it on. That's what you do with knowledge. And so it goes on through the generations. Hi, it's me, Gareth. And that was the very recognisable voice of the legendary plantsman Roy Lancaster. Today we're doing as Roy says and spreading the word about exciting plant species, cultivars and hybrids from those that love them the most. People like Roy Lancaster and Jack Aldridge, a young horticultural superstar we've had on the podcast recently, will be telling us about the stories behind the plants that they think deserve a little extra love. And joining me to help impart this knowledge is James Armitage, RHS botanist and editor of both The Plant Review and The Orchid Review. Hi James. Hi Gareth. Each quarter, we release an episode dedicated to a few of the plant-forward stories published in the latest issue of The Plant Review. As a refresher, The Plant Review is the RHS's magazine for people wanting an in-depth look at the bizarre, brilliant and beautiful plants we grow in our gardens. Our last episode about The Plant Review was called Travelling Back in Time, and we covered some of the key moments in botanical history. And today we're doing another Plant Review episode all about growing something new. So, James, why did you land on the theme for this show? Well, it struck me, as I read through the articles, that there were quite a lot of familiar plants, but just with a bit of a twist. So, things that you know from gardens like shrubby, linisseras, linissera cross perpusei. Classic winter honeysuckle, yeah. Classic winter honeysuckle. Nothing wrong with that. But there's lots of other species that you might consider growing along that theme. And then we've got an article on erythroniums, you know, we might grow pagoda and a couple of others, but there's far more to choose from. So I just thought, well, you know, there's all these familiar plants, but why do we limit ourselves to those? Let's seek out something really good this spring and have a bash with them. So stay tuned for stories on shrubby honeysuckles, flowering dogwoods, and a curious genus called Sinalesis. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, James Armitage. And me, Gareth Richards. This bag here contains all my notebooks concerning China and Japan, my trips there, that is. And this one, and this very page is the one on which I recorded Lanisra Eliza. Over the course of his very long career, Roy Lancaster has gone on numerous expeditions looking for exciting and unusual plants growing in the wild. And of course, he kept copious notes. 
So drawing from then today, we're going to explore a rare but lovely shrubby honeysuckle, the Lanicera elizae he just mentioned. It's a very large genus, Lanicera, but it's basically divided into two halves in terms of the different kinds of Lanicera's. And of course, the common name honeysuckle has been applied to a climbing species, Lanicera paracyclamen. That's the, the honeysuckle that most people think of, and many gardeners grow in their gardens, Lanicera paracyclamen. The, the other group of Lanicera's are the shrubby ones. Uh, you can call them shrubby honeysuckles simply because they're in the same family. But at a glance, you would never connect them. A person who hasn't actually studied them might wonder how they can be related. But they are, you examine the, the flower pots and the fruits, of course. They all have these, these succulent berries, usually very attractive. But the, sh the shrubby honeysuckles, they don't have the large flamboyant flowers of men in the climbing species, but they display a range of colours, different colours, different species, and they come in all shapes and sizes. And so um, one of the ones that most excited me, which I've written about, was uh, a honeysuckle that I found in China. This was in 1983, and I'd gone there leading a group of really keen horticultural people, both professional and uh, amateurs. And we'd gone off and we were visiting a range of mountains known as the Wudang Shan. If you think of Beijing, it's way to the west, heading towards Tibet. And on this particular day, we were walking up the mountain and we came into a wooded area and we were following a range of steps, which were known as the heavenly stairs. And these steps led right up the mountain, in some places very steeply, right to the summit of the mountain, where there was the so-called golden temple. And I found some berries, red berries, on these steps. And I looked around, I couldn't see anything that, you know, no shrub around with the berries on them intact. So I just pocketed these berries and continued climbing the steps. It wasn't long before I overtook a young woman who was carrying a baby in a little knapsack. And in her hand, she clutched a cluster of twigs. And I noticed straight away she had one of them was an evergreen azalea called Rhododendron simsii with red flowers and, and small leaves. But she also had twigs with red berries on them. So I could examine them and I realised that this has to be a Lanicera, but I've never seen anything like this before. So I noted the area and on my return from the summit, I was keeping my eyes peeled for the azalea. I thought if I see the azalea, hopefully I'll find the Lanicera. And that's what happened. There's the shrub, it was about six feet high, as much across lots of stems and slender branches and with these orange-red berries. And so I, um, I collected a few more and I returned with them and I distributed them amongst friends and people I knew would be interested. And it's only four years later that a plant in my garden flowered for me. 
and I couldn't find it in any of my books, so I sent a piece to Q. And eventually, it was identified as uh, a species called Anesra Eliza. It was named by a famous French taxonomist, a botanist, uh, for Eliza Vilmorin who was a keen naturalist and well-known of a very famous Vilmarin nurseries in France. This was in the 1800s. And so it had been named for her by the French botanist. And so I had my name. Once I had a name, I was able to look it up in books. And I have, I'm really lucky in having a book, this one here, and it's an English translation of the diaries kept by famous French missionary, the Abbe Armand David. And he went out to China, this was in the 1860s, and he collected all manner of things. And on one trip into what was then known as Inner Mongolia, there he reported seeing a plant growing in the, on the mountainside. And he noticed that the local people were picking the berries from it. And he realised that it was a Lanisera, but he didn't know which one. But it was the one named Eliza, Lanisera Eliza. So he'd found it over a hundred years earlier than we saw it in the Wudang Shan. But that shrub is now in cultivation, and the flowers are a lovely creamy colour with a hint of primrose yellow, and they have a wonderful sweet perfume. The other thing I think that makes a plant worth growing or interesting to have in a garden is that plants, whatever they look like, whatever they produce ornamentally, fruit, flower, leaves, whatever, autumn colour, they come with a history. The name is the key. And if you know the name of a plant, you can unlock the stories of that plant where it came from, who found who was it growing with in the wild, who introduced it to cultivation in the West. And therein is a raft of stories and exciting things, very often leading to other stories. So for me, this plant is worth growing for its, its early flower, its perfume. It's not commonly seen in gardens, but it is available commercially. And it has this wonderful story which involves these characters, starting with Father David. Big thanks there to Roy. Roy has written an article all about shrubby lanisseras entitled Meetings with Shrubby Honeysuckles for the March issue of the Plant Review. Head to our show notes to find information on how to subscribe. So in this feature, Roy chatted about one species, Lonicera elysi. But I know in the article that he wrote for you, he included a handful of other shrubby honeysuckles. So can you tell us a bit about them, James, and why perhaps they would be a fun addition to a garden? Well, uh, first just say I could listen to that man talk about <laughs> plants for more or less ever. He is brilliant, uh, isn't he? He is great. But they're much underrated things. So when we think of things that we grow sort of in the winter months for fragrance, we might think of Daphne or... Viburnum, Bodnantensi Dawn, things like that. Mm. And I think these are a really underrated alternative to those. 
Although I did hear that some of them can be difficult to root from cuttings, which might be why they haven't got around quite so much mm. as, as some of these other things. But they have quite charming flowers, I think. Understated is probably a word you, yes. would, you would use about them. Underrated in all but perfume. Yeah, that's right. Often this very sort of lemony, citrusy mm. um, fragrance and, and a, a definite daintiness. And I'm very tempted, having read the article, obviously, to try and get hold of some of these things like Lunisera, Sitifera. There's one called Daphnis with little um, pinkish flowers. And I'm very taken with that. Oh, sound, they sound wonderful. But moving on from honeysuckles, what are we going to focus on next? Well, I thought we'd get into a genus that, unlike Lanisra, is not well known to gardeners at all, really. And that's Sinalesis. Quite a mouthful, a genus of really surprising members of the daisy family with shade-loving leaves, which are a bit like shredded parasols. They're gaining in popularity, but only just, and Graham Ware, a horticulturist from Canada, wants to change that. What's happened is that a lot of our landscapes are getting very vertical. There's a lot of apartments. There's lots of buildings that people are living in that are 20 and 30 and 40 stories high. There's a lot more shade around. And so I think we have to kind of take a little page out of Carl Jung's book. You remember Carl? He used to garden on the edge of Lake Como. And one of his big sayings was, and I'll get this right, own your shadow. So if you own your shadow, it meant other things, of course, for Carl. It meant if you really looked at your own darkness, you would become enlightened, right? Well, similarly with gardening, if you embrace your shade, you will have a lot more opportunities to grow plants and you'll have a different tone and a different kind of thing going on in your garden. I think there's something that's inherently ecological about shade gardening because you kind of have to leave it alone. You're not looking for the big flower hit, you're more relying upon foliage. And because you're relying more on foliage, you tend to look at the structure of plants and the more sculptural and more aesthetic qualities of plants. They tend to be big leafed. They tend to be monsoon centric. They can take the action. And the reason they have big leaves is so they can photosynthesize more easily off the little light that they get. And I think it has a real appeal to people on a certain level when they get beyond just the sunny, the sunny little plants that everybody's familiar with growing. One of the plants that really has got people excited about shade gardening is Senelisus, and for good reason. When the plant emerges out of the ground, it's almost like, is that a mouse on the ground? that has got all these gray, bristly, you know, hairs. And then it comes up and it unfurls and, and then it gets these beautiful big leaves. A month later, they've all compressed and now the surface of the leaf is completely coriaceous. It's smooth as linoleum and it's thick. And then here comes these funky little flowers out of the thing. And it's like, wow, there's all these different phases that are part of this whole plant's yearly cycle. And it's quite exciting actually. With Senelisus aconitifolia, or the monk's hood leafed Senelisus, that plant is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of cultivars and variations of form of that one, but most of the uh, goodies in this genus come through palmata. And 
in terms of the types that I think really work well and the ones I've seen, the ones that really interest me are the Ogon group or the ones that the leaves are gold. And the reason for that is there's something about Oreo variegation or gold variegation that really works beautifully in shade. It warms it up. It provides a lovely harmonic contrast with the typically green leaves of the other plants. And uh, another one that is extremely attractive, and in fact I'm growing right now, is called Akafu. And that's leaves with red variegation. And they can be different kinds of variegation in that. I mean, really, it's amazing how, how much possibilities there are. If you could see from this list that I, I pulled down and I mean, you've got uh, Torofu group, leaves with tiger stripe variegation. That's one of the most popular, really, really showy. You've got the Shiro Fukurin Fu group, which is the leaves with very clean, white bordered variegation. And the Kikofu has been around for quite a few uh, years. And that's the tortoise shell patterning in which it really is uh, quite stunning in, in many ways. Senilisis uh, is pretty, pretty democratic. It'll take a number of different kinds of soils, but the most important thing is drainage. It's sort of grown up in monsoon country, otherwise known as atmospheric river country. And so it's grown in the mountains. There's been lots of snow, you know, lots of seepage and stuff like that. So I think drainage is really important. So one of the things I would say, if you're going to do a little area in your garden, Maybe get some logs or maybe some trees have blown down in your neighborhood. Get out the trusty chainsaw, zip them up, and use them as a kind of a, a raised bed to kind of give a rustic look. If you can't do that, get some nice rocks. Give everything a little lift and use coarse sand. Use bark mulch, use compost, and that kind of stuff. Don't get it too mucky. You're not trying to grow a tomato here. They tend to be on the lean side and that's why they're bulletproof. Uh, once you get them established, they're really, really good. So you can use almost anything. You could put chicken grit in there. You could put coir, whatever you need to establish the bed. The pH should be fairly neutral to slightly acid. Although if the substrate is alkaline, it doesn't make any difference at all. These guys are very omnivorous, nutritionally speaking, as far as the substrate goes. So. I think that's another one of the things that should show people and demonstrate to them how easy it is and should make their popularity grow because it's not like you have to do a workshop to grow the plant. They'll be what we might call high entertainment, low maintenance. People are just going, my God, you can do so much with these plants because once you've got them there, they provide such a backdrop. It's like having, you know, Paul McCartney on bass, and now you can be John Lennon or George Harrison. You've got someone who can really, you know, thump out a good bass line. Oh yeah, and he can sing too. Uh, so yes, it's uh, a great plant. It is ready to rock. If you have a tough spot in your garden and you're thinking, oh God, what am I gonna do with this spot? And it's shady and us up, ah! We have a pioneer plant here, Senilisis, and maybe you could work in some, you know, some violets or different things like that, and you suddenly transform this area. But guess 
who's right there at the beginning is your senilisus, a conotifolia, your senilisus, palmatum, and some of these tough, unassuming plants that don't require a lot of maintenance. They just want you to do a right amount of attention at the right time. And after that, it's just all enjoyment. So Gareth, has Graham persuaded you to grow Sinalesis in your garden? Do you know what? I think he has. I have to admit, I'd never heard of it before. And I looked it up and I love the way their new leaves come up almost like a ballet dancer's hand sort of flicking up. It's very kind of sculptured and elegant. And I feel like from the way he's talking about them, they could almost be something D of Hosters have run for their money in terms of, you know, an architectural herbaceous plant for shade. You know, the thing is, they look really like choice and one of those things that just be totally yeah. impossible yeah, to grow. Yeah. But I have grown um, well, Aconidifolia um, mm. quite a long time ago now in Hampshire on clay soil mm. over chalk, not very promising. But it, it was okay, it was fine. And I, I have to say, I was absolutely bowled over. I had no idea of all these foliage variants. Mm. There were all these new cultivars. Um, and I think they could be a, a, a coming thing. Yeah, I like his quote from Jung, own your shadow. And I think quite often gardeners try too hard to fight against shade. You know, if you've got shade, embrace it. Embrace the opportunities that it gives you to grow all these really interesting things. Well, right plant, right place yeah. really is a, a good motto to have. Absolutely. But now we've done shrubs and we've done shade-loving ground dwellers, what else have we got on the schedule for today? I was thinking of focusing on trees, actually. Flowering dogwoods, to be exact. Jack Aldridge, a woody plant connoisseur at RHS Garden Wisley, has a real penchant for these large bracted plants. He chatted with us at the Bowes Lion Rose Garden at Wisley, which houses a small collection of flowering dogwoods. He shared the stories behind a few exciting and useful hybrids. So the collection of dogwoods in the Rose Garden at Wisley are what are known as flowering dogwoods, mainly Cornus cusa. I think when people think of dogwoods, people think of different things because as a genus they are quite diverse and you've got everything from the coloured stemmed dogwoods like Cornus alba and Cornus sanguinea and then there are things like Cornus canadensis which is this low almost ground cover like perennial from Canada and North America then there's Cornus mass which is flowering now with small corymbs of, of yellow flowers and then the bracted group and it's the bracted group that we're going to focus on and talk about today and by bracted we'll talk about the makeup of the flower so they have this small button-like flower or inflorescence made up of hundreds of tiny flowers and they are, they are joined by or subtended by four, usually four, large bracts which as a collective whole look like a flower and they're produced in great numbers across these small trees or large shrubs and create this, this really quite incredible effect in early summer. So within the big bracted dogwood group. Uh, there's four main species that we grow in gardens. Two of them are Asiatics from the Himalaya, China, Japan and Korea, Cornus cusa and Cornus capitata is another and then two of them are North American from the east and west coast respectively. And that's Cornus florida from the east coast and Cornus nuttalli from the west coast, the Pacific dogwood. So because of their close genetic relationship, these four bracted species have 
hybridized in cultivation. And the first sort of set of hybrids, first group of hybrids, is between the two Asiatic species, so Cornus capitata cross Cornus cusa. And that cross first occurred in, in a garden in Somerset in the 1950s. There was a, a well-known plantsman and gardener called Norman Haddon, a, a name that's since become almost synonymous with dogwoods. So I think people that are growing these bracted dogwoods will know the name Norman Haddon. And he had a large, large garden growing all, all manner of plants, really, Cornus capitata and Cornus cusa being among them. And he noticed a seedling appear at the base of one of these plants one day. And, you know, as, as any curious gardener or plantsman might do, rather than weeding it out, hoeing it off, it was lifted and potted up and sort of observed this over several years and grew it on. And it, when it finally flowered for the first time, he'd sort of, by that point, realised this was something new and interesting. And after a bit of umming and ahhing about what the possible parents of this hybrid might be, I think it was settled on that this, this must be a hybrid between the deciduous Cornus cusa and the evergreen Cornus capitata, which both grew in close proximity in his garden. And it was decided it would be named Norman Haddon. And Cornus Norman Haddon, among the bracted dogwoods, is, is one of the best known of all the selections. But I think it's probably grown in gardens without people really realising the full story and its, its origins as, as a hybrid of those two species. But that wasn't the only time. There have been other occasions in which the two have crossed in gardens and there's been a, yeah, a, success, a steady succession of uh, dogwood cultivars named from that hybrid cross. So while both parent species of the hybrid in their own right are wonderful garden plants. The, the hybrids just provide that something a little bit different in that they've got this extended flowering season and the bracts colour up over a longer period of time, usually a little bit later than Cornus cusa, which might be sort of doing its thing in, in June. We'd expect the cusa capitata hybrids to be colouring up throughout July and the autumn colour, much like the display of bracts on the plant, early in summer, the, the autumn colour uh, is, is again drawn out over a longer period. So rather than getting a brief, glorious week of amazing red or, or, or orange, the autumn colour is, is much more of a slow burn and develops with time, sort of from October, sometimes right up till Christmas and can still be looking really quite, quite spectacular then. So along with hybrids between the two Asiatic species of bracted dogwoods, there's also been hybrids that have occurred in cultivation between the two North American species, Cornus florida and Cornus nuttalli. So the, these hybrids that have occurred look very similar to Cornus nuttalli, the Pacific dogwood, with these really rather large heads of flowers, sometimes up to 15 centimetres across, big, wide, creamy yellow bracts that appear on the plant before the leaves, on the bare branches, so create this, this wonderful effect. And um, one of the sort of best attributes that these hybrids uh, inherit from the other Cornus Florida parent is their autumn colour. Because the Cornus nuttalli on its own very rarely colours up at all, let alone well, whereas these hybrids are absolutely spectacular for their autumn colour. This wonderful mix of rich pinks and reds and oranges, and the whole plant is ablaze with colour in, in autumn. Probably the best known is Eddie's White Wonder which I'm sure people will be familiar with. It's got an AGM from the RHS, Ward of Garden Merit, and yeah, the nurseryman, Mr. H.M. Eddy, wanted the best attributes of both Nuttalai and Florida 
the story behind the name is that of that hybrid that he made, he, he crossed the two species, collected the seed, raised a batch of seedlings, and then lost all, nearly lost all of them in a flood, except one, which was the wonder, the wonder child, and that was named Eddie's White Wonder for that reason. So the hybridization of these well-known flowering dogwoods has largely occurred spontaneously in gardens, and it's only been as a result of people picking up on that, spotting these seedlings, growing them on, recognizing their qualities as a garden plant that have meant that these have come to the fore and been named and are now grown in, in gardens. Whereas looking ahead a little bit, that's also happened artificially with people selecting, deliberately selecting different dogwood species to cross to create a new race of exciting flowering dogwoods. And it was about 40 years ago, a, a man called Dr. Elwyn Orton at Rutgers State University in New Jersey was doing exactly that. And he really kick-started a whole chain of events of exciting dogwood hybrids uh, and developing plants that were more, more suitable for the climate on the east coast of North America. So as well as, uh, yeah, the more practical uh, side of being robust, tolerant, and their ability to cope with pest and disease, he created this new hybrid race of dogwoods that that flowered earlier, they're more vigorous, they're even more floriferous, uh, they flower early in the season and are both easier to grow than either Cornus nuttallii or Florida, but yet create that effect in the landscape early in the year. And that, that first group of hybrids was what he called the Stella series, cross Rutgerensis, and some of those uh, have become popular garden plants or, or becoming popular garden plants in, in the UK now. Things like Cornus Ruth Ellen, Cornus Aurora, Cornus Stella Pink. They're all selections from that hybrid and they're, they're fantastic garden plants. So with the idea of growing something new in mind, um, these flowering dogwoods are the perfect small tree with something to offer for every season, be it structure in winter or autumn color, a wonderful display of fruits, and then of course their spectacular display of bracts in, in, in early summer. I want to take a moment to brag about Jack a bit. He may hate this, but that's his problem. He's now named in the March issue of the Plant Review two Cornus cultivars who've given them botanical names. So we now have Cornus cross transamericanus, which are the hybrids between Cornus florida and Cornus natalii, and also Cornus cross hedenii, which is Cornus cusa cross Cornus capitata. So well done to Jack for that. And he joins the ranks of Linnaeus and Darwin in being the author of, of some plant names. Well done him. Hats off. Good lad. <laughs> so James, before we go, quick question for you. What's something else weird and wacky that you would recommend our listeners plant this growing season that we haven't touched on today? Well, there's so many plants to choose from that uh, I hardly like to give recommendations. I can tell you a couple of things that I'm growing this year. Sure. I'm going to be growing from seed Limonium perezii, which is a kind of sea lavender, a great big sea lavender from the Canary Islands. Oh, that sounds fabulous. And I got some seeds, and they've all come up like mustard and cress, so I've got loads and loads of these things. But you see it grown in California and that sort of mm -hmm. climate as a very impressive thing. We have sea lavenders and natives in, in this country, mm. but this is like a, a thing apart. It's much bigger and much blousier. And so I'm going to give that a go. And the other thing I'm going to grow from seed is something called Sonchus brassicifolius, which used to be called Dendrocerus litoralis. 
and I've grown it from seed before and it grows really easily from seed. And it's a plant that grows on the Juan Fernandez Islands and which used to be known as the Robinson Crusoe Islands. So you have to imagine, okay, yeah. imagine Robinson Crusoe eating this thing. And it's like another daisy. It's got great big paddle-shaped leaves and huge pendulous orange flowers. Wow. And it's an amazing looking thing. And when this first started being sold a few years ago, it cost about 25 quid for a packet of seeds. But now it's about sort of three to five pounds and you can give them a go. But I would say maybe challenge people not to grow something entirely new, but something that they're familiar with, but have always hated. Mm. So I've never had a real thing for camellias, but this year they've been lovely, I think. And it's inspired me to put my prejudice aside and grow some camellias. Well, thanks for joining me today, James. I just wanted to note that every story we've heard today is from the March issue of The Plant Review. So do subscribe. You have until the end of February to get a subscription if you'd like a copy of this particular issue. So from me, Gareth Richards. And me, James Armitage. Goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.